Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another episode of Trundle Bed Tales. This is the podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder, historic foodways, one-room schools, and other social history. I'm Sarah Utah, the host and creator of Trundle Bed Tales. Find us around the web under Trundle Bed Tales and on your favorite social media platform. If you listen or just have an account on iTunes, please leave positive feedback because that helps people find the show. This is episode 94, Sandra Oliver and the Genealogy of a Recipe. I am pleased to say I'm always glad when we can have Sandy come on the show. And I want to uh, welcome her aboard. And there we go. All right. Hello, Sandy. Thank you for calling Hello. in. Hello. How are you, Sarah? Oh, oh just fine. Now, uh, Sandy, let me know earlier today that she's had a little trouble with her phone, but I think we're going to be all right. At least I hope so. I hope so, too. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to just uh, quickly here uh, run through our housekeeping, and then we'll be right back to Sandy. So... For our housekeeping, I want everybody to know that they can call in at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5 or toll-free 1-877-633-9389. That's 1-877-633-9389. And uh, my chat room, I normally have open, but... It has been being a real pain lately, so I'm going to guess it isn't going to let me in tonight either. But we'll give that a shot, and hopefully I'll get it figured out why it's being annoying pretty soon. And I hope that you will keep an eye out for new episodes. I haven't been doing real great on getting people a long lead time and letting them know that it's coming out, but I have people, not dates, but people uh, having signed up for the next three months to be my speakers. So hopefully we will be getting those out in a timely fashion. So watch for it when I do give the heads up. And I think for right now, that's the end of our housekeeping. And with that, we are back to Sandy. So let's start out by you just telling people a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I've been a food historian for, oh, lots of years, 40-something years. I started doing uh, fireplace cooking uh, in 1971, 
and found myself terribly interested in the, in anything to do with the history of food and dining, um, cooking, growing food, keeping it, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and have just been working in the field ever since. And it really is kind of an addictive thing, food history, because you get <laughs> going and uh, it just draws you in because as you get going, you want to be more accurate. And as you're more accurate, you need the right uh, food and the, the right um, uh, equipment and the right fuel and the right clothes. And you can't get the, the right stuff, so you start making it and you start hunting through antique shops and you start growing food and it just snowballs. And yes, it does. I, I really. <laughs> yes, it's really, really yes. <laughs> all that. And those of us who like this stuff like often like to cook as well. So you can imagine what happens to the cookbook libraries in our in our homes. They swell to absurd proportions sometimes. Just new well, stuff as well as old old books. That that is certainly true. Um, I have my Laura Ingalls Wilder research building and one aisle is my mom's cookbook. So wow, is, good for you. So there is certainly that is part of the addiction too. Well, uh, Sandra was Sandra was also the editor for many years of the number one food history newsletter in the country, Food History News, and I don't think anything's really stepped into that void. And she also is the editor or writer, I guess I should say, of several cookbooks. And she also did a blog that went along with the newsletter, which is why my blog is called Sarah's Notebook, because uh, your <laughs> Sandy's was Editor's Notebook. And I yes, always it enjoyed reading yeah. it. Well, so, you know, the Internet has offered us so many research opportunities and links and connections that I think uh, Food History News used to do that, uh, but I don't. I think that I myself use the Internet all the time to do cookbook searches and research ingredients and places and equipment and all that stuff. So, um, you know, we we have that incredible resource and more being added to it all the time. Well, that's true, but the nice thing about a newsletter is that it's kind of a focused thing and it comes, you know, with a fairly regular regularity and then you can just kind of focus on something. That's the trouble with the Internet. It's hard to focus. It sure is. There's so much that you catch something out of the corner of your eye and you're off like a like a rabbit down a hole. You know, I mean, it's really hard to, to uh, stick to your knitting. It is. Uh, so would you like to tell people a little, some of the titles of books that you've written? Oh, sure. I'm sure. My first one was Saltwater Foodways, New Englanders and Their Food at Sea and Ashore in the 19th Century. Um, and, and that really was what it was all about. Um, I wrote it for Mystic Seaport Museum where I was um, where I worked for many years. And um, it uh, just explores food um, in New England seacoast towns food on, in various um, aspects of the maritime, um, on board whaling vessels, on board fishing vessels, on board um, deep water sailing vessels, cargo vessels, 
Um, and I wrote about chowder parties and clam bakes and um, how people celebrated all the holidays at sea and ashore. And uh, it had it had a lot of recipes in it. It was more narrative. It had lots of stories of of life in the 1800s, and um, that was the bulk of the book. But I illustrated quite a lot of quite a lot of the stories with recipes for the particular foods mentioned. So that was first. Um, I also co-authored a book about Thanksgiving with um, my friend and colleague, Kathleen Curtin. With That book was published by uh, Clarkson Potter uh, for Plymouth Plantation. We wrote about the history, about 400 years worth of Thanksgiving history. Brought it right up to date. Um, I wrote um, a book called Food in Colonial and Federal America, which is sort of an overview history of the food in uh, all of the colonies, which included not just what we always think of as the original 13, but also southeast, um, the southeast U.S., which included Florida um, and those southern tier states, um, which later became uh, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and so forth, uh, and also the southwest, the part that was settled by Mexico, um, all up into um, Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California. So I oh, and also mentioned um, in the upper Midwest um, all of the uh, French settlers who moved down the rivers and into um, that uh, Indiana, Illinois, all those areas from Canada. So the colonial America was really a rather large and sprawling enterprise, and we tend to focus on um, 13 colonies, but there were many more. Um, so that that was that. And then uh, I have also written a book called Maine Home Cooking, which is really all modern food. Um, I'm also am a food, freelance food writer. So um, that is a collection of uh, recipes that appear in the Bangor Daily News, which is one of our... Uh, I live in Maine, and that's one of the uh, big Maine dailies. We have, I have a weekly column there. It puts me in touch with uh, lots of our old timers and new timers, both, and we have um, recipes for everything under the sun, and uh, that's that's a lot of what I do now, and it's a lot of fun. I, I guess that's mostly it. And that's if enough, you, <laughs> well, it's certainly quite a bit. Uh, and if anybody uh, wants to hear a little bit more about the Thanksgiving book, that was when. The last time Sandy came on the show, in fact, I was just listening to it last week since it's Thanksgiving time, and uh, if, and I will be sure to put a link to that in the show notes, or you can find it uh, linked from either my blog or my website and also directly from Blog Talk Radio if you want to uh, catch it. Oh, and you can also download it from iTunes. Okay. Good. Well. That sounds great. So what we were uh, going to kind of talk about today, uh, Sandy, is uh, you've been doing these um, multi-day workshops helping people track down kind of the history of a recipe. So what kind of things do you do in in these workshops? 
it's really a methodology workshop. It's it's to give people a whole basket of tools so they can go off and discover everything that they possibly can about a particular recipe. Um, and the recipes we work on really depend on, on the participants in the workshop. Some people are just dying to know everything that there is to know about bubble and squeak, and some people want to tackle bread pudding, and some want to know about cornbread. Um, so it's just about everything under the sun. Uh, and basically, um, we start out with some good secondary sources, and then generally after a little while we start drilling down in uh, cookbooks and every other kind of source we can to find the, the whole story of a, of a particular dish. Um, so while it's a really intriguing thing, to do it, hardly any recipe was ever invented. They're always evolved from something that that, that occurred before, existed before. Americans like to think that you know we're, that things get invented, and we're, and we're very likely to attribute it to this person or that person, and say, well, you know, so and so invented such and such a dish. But if you look into the past, you'll see the precedents for all that. You know, recipes are just like people. They're, they're uh, descendants of something that went before. Uh, and then in, in, over time, people add stuff to it or subtract stuff from the recipe, suit their own purposes, their own tastes, new or different ingredients. And uh, we end up with, um, a, a, you know, a living a living recent recipe uh, with a long past. I, I often call these things every dish has a past, um, and some dishes, of course, have more of a past than others, but they all have one. Now, um, what I was, what I, the first thing I was going to ask, and I messed up and didn't ask it first, uh, but I think we want to stop and say, uh, so what does, food history mean? When someone says food history, what are they um, referring to? Um, Wow. Yeah, sometimes this depends on who you're asking. I tend to make a distinction between culinary history and food history. For me, culinary history is more the history of cookery, how, how dishes were prepared um, in a very specific cookery uh, cookery way. For me, for me, food history means a whole lot of other stuff added to the cookery. So, for example, um, whatever the, whatever uh, habits people had around eating, what times of day they ate, what the, what constituted a meal over time, who ate at the meal, how did they behave, what kinds of tools and um, and uh, dishes, uh, flatware, all kinds of stuff like that uh, appeared on the table. What was the behavior around food? Who was included uh, at the table and how were they included? And were there, um, did people say grace? Was there certain rituals associated with certain foods? Um, where did food come from, from uh, uh, the larger world? Uh, how much was imported? How much was produced locally? What laws pertain to all of this? What was the trade, the economics, and the social uh, social aspects of food? I mean, 
that and the politics of food. I mean, there's an awful lot to food history. Food touches upon just about everything you can think of in our lives, and it does today. I mean, you can listen to the news tonight and hear about starving people in, in Yemen and why in a world that has plenty of food, some people still go hungry. Uh, and food's kind of a, a touchstone for history, too, that, you know, people may not understand uh, some things about history, but food is something that everybody can kind of make a connection to. Yes, that's really true. When I worked at Mystic Seaport, which is a maritime museum, there were a great many exhibits all about boats and boat building and blacksmithing and coopering and all kinds of maritime tra- crafts and trades. And... Um, but people would walk into uh, the Buckingham house where I worked, and they would see me in the hearth, and I'd be cooking. And and right away, there was a connection, because everybody eats. Not everybody knows the first thing about how to build a barrel or how to, how to make a small boat or sew a sail, but everybody eats. And all of a sudden, here was something comforting and familiar on <laughs> this world of very strange and wonderful things, you know, there there's something, my gosh, look at that. I recognize that. That's a cornbread, you know. There was something familiar. Mm. Now, uh, we were talking about the, the history of the recipes, and mm-hmm. probably the most um, direct way that you get the history of a recipe is through your family. Do you think uh, family recipes are important? You know, I th- I think it is in families where food is important. Uh, I mean, there are, if you you could try this with your own circle of friends. You could say, well, you know, what did your mother cook, and what recipes of of hers do you have, or did your grandmother cook, and do you have her recipes, and did anybody in your family talk about what they ate, um, and why? And when you cook, the, when you cook something that they uh, used to make, and they and you have their recipe in hand, when you cook this, do you re- do you remember them? Do does this taste like what you remember it tastes like? Um, so yes, it can it can be important um, if if food and and connecting through dining at the table and cooking together was important in people's families. It can also, you know, I not to not to bring too large a cloud over the sunshine here, but you know in some families food was a, is a very stressful topic and and um people have uh, uncomfortable memories around dinner time. It was a maybe a time when um Everybody was spent so much time trying to keep their elbows off the table and use their forks properly that they didn't really enjoy the food. Or perhaps that was the moment everybody in the family decided to have a big fight. Uh, Thanksgiving, you know, people will talk about the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. And so for some folks, it's just this jolly, great big romp, and everybody's getting along. And, you know, Aunt so-and-so brings two apple pies, and somebody else brings, you know, her famous chutney or something. And, and everybody's just having a terrific time. And in other families... Uh, they're absolutely dreading the political conversations because if you know people on, on part of the family have a very different point of view than people in another part, so it can be um, it can be really fraught, but it also can be really joyful too. So, 
what are some of the things that ca- can cause a recipe to change or or morph into something else over the years? Style? Uh, fashion? Yes. We're all susceptible to fashion and certain dishes fall out of fashion. Our Thanksgiving meal is... Um, has been so far remarkably immune to fashion. Christmas, on the other hand, um, um, is subject to all kinds of variations because it's a, uh, we don't have a, a particular meal generally associated with that day. But even so, um, uh, depending on where in the country you live, uh, you might find that you're adding uh, uh, sweet potatoes to your menu where um, perhaps that didn't used to uh, didn't used to happen in your family. Maybe somebody in your family married a southerner, or maybe you all moved to Missouri or someplace where you know there's a lot of southern influence. All of a sudden, there's um, sweet potatoes on the table. Where before it was just good old mashed Irish ones. Um, after um, uh, lard gets a, a bad name in the late 20th century, so people stop making pie crusts with lard instead they use some other ingredient and maybe that ingredient you know like the one that comes in the cans uh, gets a bad uh, gets a bad reputation and maybe people switch back to lard or they just give up and stop eating pie uh, so <laughs> all kinds of things can, can happen to a recipe um, ingredients do change over time um, lots of standardization the flour that our great-great-great-great-grandmothers made their pie crusts out of was pretty different from the, the extremely consistent product that, product that we get in the store now when we pick up a bag of flour. It's going to be exactly the way it was the last time you bought it, probably the same as it was the last year when you bought it, and you're probably figuring that, you know, in six months or if you get another bag, it's going to be just the same too, so... Um, but in, over a longer period of time, ingredients do change. I often think about um, uh, the 20th century has offered up lots of ingredients that people used um, uh, as if they were um, something you could get out of the garden or out of your pantry. You know, think about all the mixes, packaged mixes that people used and incorporated into their holidays or into um, just their family's usual routine of, of meals. Oh, after a while, uh, those ingredients are reformulated by the manufacturers in order to um, bring costs down or keep the costs down or to make use of a new ingredient that didn't exist before that offers some quality that they want in the um, in this dish that they're producing. Um, and then if somebody else comes along and you try to use a recipe written down say, in the 1930s and it calls for a package of this or a package of that, so you go out and get it, but you get a very different result because that that particular ingredient has changed so very much. In the 20th century recipes... Um, in the future, are going to cough up an awful lot of absolutely extinct recipes. Uh, We're simply not going to ever be able to make them again. 
Sometimes it has to do with package sizing. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. If anybody if anybody hasn't looked at an old community cookbook, and if anyone doesn't know, a community cookbook is one where uh, people in a community or a group of some kind submit recipes rather than one person putting the recipes together. But if you get one of those from the 80s, and uh, one that was put together that says, like, ounces that a package you're supposed to have and things, it has changed so much. It, it is just is incredible, and it isn't all that long ago. No, it isn't all that long ago. Yeah, one of the most recent things to, to crop up in that category, it's going to talk, require real vigilance on our part, is, is um, how chocolate, baking chocolate, is produced. Now, um, the, if you go to the store and you pick up a package of, of um, baking chocolate, you're likely to end up with something that has four ounces in it. Well, you used to be able to pick up something that had eight, um, and the uh, it would have it would, the box would hold eight one ounce squares, and they were quite little chunks, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's thinner. Um, they're advertised as easy break, um, and they sure are easy to break. But there's only four ounces in a box that looks like it's the same size as the one we used to have. So. Paying attention to not to the number of squares that you have to have, but to the number of ounces you have to have is going to be absolutely, you have to pay close attention and end up with not anything that tastes what you expect. And if if anybody is writing down their current recipes, make sure you do that. Don't put down one can, put down so many ounces because yes, really right. it makes a huge difference. Converted into cups too, you know. If you're looking at a can of, say, fifteen ounce can of pumpkin, that's a scant two cups full. Now, you know, if you're making a pie, you probably can get away with it. You know, you don't have to have a full two cups. Um, you know, just maybe add another egg or something just to keep the quantity. But in other dish, in other kinds of recipes, watch out. <laughs> Things can change a lot. They can. And, I mean, just especially the liquids of it, I think, is kind of bad. Because if somebody's, um, like I've got a a recipe uh, for kind of sloppy joe sandwiches that I make a lot. That was originally from one of these community cookbooks in the 80s. And I think it was one of the tomato tomato paste, I think, recipe is... um, I think it was six ounces, and now the same can sold as four. So you have to kind of make up that liquid, or it's just going to be, it would be dry as dust if I just did the one can. That's right, yeah. Oh, it's so tricky. It really is tricky. This this problem has never occurred before in history, so this is a unique, unique thing for we modern cooks to have to think about things like that. And, you know, before earlier, I think people just worried about how fresh their ginger was. If you were living on the frontier and you had a recipe that called for, um, you know, a tablespoon of ginger uh, pounded and sifted, well, depending on how old your ginger was, you might want twice as much as that. If it was old ginger, it had traveled a long way or sat in a grocery shelf for a longer bit of time, it might have lost lost a lot of its oomph. Um, so in the you know in the past people would have had to use their noses and their their taste buds to determine was there enough in the enough in the dough to 
give them the flavor that they were looking for. Um, uh, and other kinds of problems like that, too. You know, similar kinds of situations came up for people. People, we we um, don't cook to taste nearly as much as we should. I think that's one of the things that cooking schools are teaching us: taste, 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 taste as you go along, um, to, to make sure you're getting the the dish that you're hoping for. So, uh, a lot of times, why a story or why a recipe is the same is a certain way doesn't come down with the recipe. And one of the things I think most about is uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's gingerbread that involves having a cup of boiling water and then pouring the um, baking powder, I think it's baking powder, into there. And Mm. that's not something that you need to do with with baking powder it's it's from the previous kinds of leavenings and yes. if you didn't know that you'd have no idea why she was messing around with this boiling water that's right that's right there's a very funny story about uh that kind of a procedure i think it's more of a joke than a real story but um apparently there's a family that had uh a recipe for a particular baked ham that somebody's grandmother used to make and so the mother said oh yes what you do um the grandmother says well cut it in half and put it in the pan like this and the mother passed you know the recipe passes down to the next generation the mother says well you have to cut the ham in half and and you know put it in the pan like this and then along comes the third generation and she's told to cut the ham in half and put it in the pan and she said why do i have to cut it in half and the mother says well i don't know so she gets a hold of the grandmother, and the grandmother said, oh, well, I didn't have a pan big enough to hold it without it being cut in half. So um, that, that's just, you know, no reason in the world for cutting it in half. Uh, but that's the, the instruction that continued on with the recipe. I think that was uh, a joke. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. And And one thing's about recipes also... Uh, is that sometimes you grow up making something in one kind of culture and you don't realize that somebody else is something incredibly similar uh, that was another culture. And um, I'm always thinking that about Slav countries because there's so many things that I grew up thinking was only Czech and it turns out the people in Poland were, and you know, on across the yes. things were doing things incredibly similarly. Yeah, it wasn't really Czech. And even you know, in completely other cultures, do kind of a similar form of cookies or this or that or the other. So it's yes. kind of interesting to see that too. And they'll usually have a different name, but you know, you look at it and you know that's what it is. Yes, that's right. That's really true. Um, a lot of celebratory breads, for example, if you you know get all those recipes and you just line them up next to each other and just take a look at them, you, what you see is there's a basic and rich dough with lots of you know with sugar and shortening and um, eggs beaten in and it's yeasted and it's allowed to rise and then there'd be these little you know slight flavor variations from you know one ethnic group to another but the core recipe is this sweetened dough which you know in fact even the English had brought to this country and 
in New England, we made something called election cake. That's essentially a sweetened dough with eggs, butter, sugar, flour, and it's yeasted and it has currants in it or raisins. Um, but it strongly, uh, strong, it strongly resembles a whole lot of other uh, of the same family of of cakes. Um, yeah, I remember back in the Serb, um, and um, oh, help me remember the the other com- country. This was not that long ago. There was a a bitter war um, in um, what used to be Yugoslavia. Um, uh, the the Croatian. Croatia. Yes. yes, Croatia, that's it. So I remember hearing a report from a reporter there who said that there was a, one of the ways that this this uh, conflict manifested itself was in a bitter fight over a certain kind of a ginger cookie. And she was assured that this particular one was a Serbian ginger cookie, and that one over there was a Croatian ginger cookie, and they were not the same at all, but... Um, and people were very firm about this uh, until the, until this particular reporter collected two res- two recipes and found they were in fact the same cookie. But you know each <laughs> each ethnic group claimed it and 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 was quite adamant that it was theirs. Um, it's what a pity they just didn't realize they could share it. <laughs> you yeah, know? <laughs> find unity in a cookie. Yeah, we use food sometimes to divide ourselves from others. Mm-hmm. So why would a person want to do a genealogical search for a recipe? What are the people coming to your workshops looking for? You know, I I just don't know, Sarah. I just, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think... I think curiosity. I think it's about curiosity more than anything. Um, I think some people are intrigued by the idea that a recipe can be the product of genealogy. Um, and so they they say, oh, if that's really true, then you know, how am I going to find the origin of this particular recipe? Or they might come kind of determined that whatever it is they have clutched in their hand is unique and um they they just they're gonna prove me wrong that it, this would be descended from something else. Um or they want to satisfy themselves that it is indeed unique and um so if you know, if you have any curiosity at all about your particular recipe you might wanna dig in and see where it comes from, where, you know, how to get to be the way it is now. Um, what were its variations over time, and when when does it first crop up? Lots of times, um, I think people are interested in knowing where does it come from. Where do we get um, chicken and dumplings? Um, where where did Brunswick stew come from anyway? And um, is is this the same as that? Say in a, in a in a Johnny Cake recipe, there's all kinds of Johnny Cakes. So is this Johnny Cake the same as that kind of Johnny Cake? And, and is this a Southern Johnny Cake or is this a Northern Johnny Cake? And how where did you know how did they get to be what they are now? So I I think that's I, I guess curiosity is is mostly it. Um, 
At least I hope so, because I think curiosity is a really good reason to dig around for something like this. <laughs> so if somebody comes to your uh, one of your workshops, what is mm-hmm. the first thing that they do? The first thing I put them to is a, a, is some good dictionaries. Uh, etymological dictionaries, the kinds that give the the history of a word by tracing it through um, several uh, citations found in different kinds of sources uh, from the past um, often opens the door to a recipe's history. So, for example, were you to look up um, a word like um, gingerbread, you you could just look up the word gingerbread, uh, in the Oxford English Dictionary or in the Dictionary of American English on Historic Principles, which is unfortunately not a digital. Uh, has to, you have to use a hard copy um, of that. But you'll see in the etymology of the word the, its earliest appearance, uh, perhaps, say, in 1763 in some newspaper published in Philadelphia, um, this particular word would crop up and um, the um, and then the second time it appears it'll, perhaps in you know, 1803 in uh, uh, some other uh, source, maybe a, a piece of fiction or uh, you know, a letter written by someone to someone else and so on. It follows the, the history of the word and it traces its context and the context tells us an awful lot. It tells us um, what, very likely, what the social, social economic, socioeconomic status is of a particular dish. It'll tell us something about its region, where it came from, um, and um, sometimes we'll go so far as to even describe the dish and how it, how it looked in a particular period of time. So the dictionaries, the etymological dictionaries are terribly, terribly useful. They're not sufficient unto themselves, however, because usually by the time the word appears in print, a food word uh, appears in print, it has been kicking around a while already. I mean, people have been using it in everyday language. Um, It just takes a little while for it to get printed, written down. Um, and then um, and recorded. Cookbooks are also um, a good source, and they are also uh, uh, more likely to reflect established practice, especially older cookbooks. Um, they reflect what people commonly did. Uh, lots of cookbooks these days are written to change people's cookbooks cooking habits or to introduce them to a new ethnic food way or to, um, you know, promote change in our habits, you know, diet cookbooks of various sorts, how to, there's, you know, there's a, there's a book out now um, called um, Yum Yum Paleo or something like that. And it's all about how to quit eating like you used to and adopt a paleo diet. That's not going to reflect established practice. That's that's out to set people on a new path. Um, 
but uh, some book like The Joy of Cooking, for example, which has been around for a long time, that that book uh, lays out a long-established practice of, of making different sorts of things. Um, and most early cookbooks were, this, were written the same way. They re- recorded what people did ordinarily. Um, and then, you know, once, and then, you know, what we do is, so we've, we've got the, we've got the sort of the history of the word itself, and then we collect some recipes around it. I like it when people look at cookbooks from, oh, you know, a good long period of time, from the earliest one they possibly can find, um, in the kinds of books we had available for us, uh, to use in this country. Um, and then just to, to follow it all the way through, up to as to as close a recent time as they can manage with uh, with it, and then you can uh, then you can compare the recipes side by side and see um, see how it changes. So, for example, supposing you're you're doing something like a blanc blancmange, you know, which is a you know a nice white, it's a nice pudding that's made with you know milk and sugar and um is usually thickened with something like a gelatin for example um and then you know in the earliest days it would it would have been seasoned with a little rose water in more recent times it's going to be seasoned with vanilla well if you write down the recipes and you compare them you can see when that switch occurred you know at you know at a certain point in the 1800s people stopped using a lot of rose water and they switched over to vanilla Instead, um, sometimes they stopped off and used lemon uh, lemon flavoring for a little while. And then they went to vanilla. Um, other kinds of um, you know various thickeners from um, um, say uh, rennet to rennet through time through uh, you know uh, um, various kinds of um, uh, gelatins, gelatin came in lots of different forms, for example, and then you know more recently cornstarch. So you can see when when an ingredient drops out, and we don't use rennet very much in our cooking nowadays. It was much more common in the past. Um, we're still using gelatin, and we certainly are likely to use cornstarch. But at one point in time, there was no such thing as cornstarch to use. So, so you see. That sometimes you see the two, you'll see ingredients being used in p- parallel. Some recipes calling for the gelatin, and some recipes calling for the cornstarch, and the va- you know. And then eventually, sometimes the the gelatin may may fall away, and then we're just left with the cornstarch. So all that you can trace all of that and see how the recipe uh, evolves. Does that answer your question, <laughs> Okay, so how that so happens. So yeah. basically, you know what I mean, like, and then what oh. we tr- then what we try to do is we try to provide some context for the dish, and that's when the story gets really, really fun, because then we can look at uh, travel and description narratives. We can find newspaper descriptions or magazine descriptions of of uh, meals or this particular dish being served. Um, we might look for um, journals or letters written by people who would have eaten it. And that's when, you know, that's when we see the dish being consumed by real people in real in real time. Um, and that's 
really, really fun. It really brings it alive. It isn't just this one little recipe stranded on a page of a cookbook somewhere. It's a you know, becomes a living a living thing. You you begin to see who the people were eating it and what the circumstances were under which they ate that ate it and that's really interesting. So uh, where do you, that you find the stuff? If someone uh, is looking to kind of follow those paths and the dictionaries, mm-hmm. your library ought to have them. But do you have any uh, favorite place to look for for old cookbooks or any go-to cookbook you like to start with? Um, I really like there's two or three really nice websites, um, and you can get to them very easily just by um, – just by putting it in a search engine, looking for it. But one, uh, one of the early ones was called Feeding America, and it digitized uh, lots of American cookbooks, and um, starting with some of the very earliest ones, and then you know coming up through time, and uh, those are available, and some, and they're searchable. I'm pretty sure they're searchable. It's called Feeding America, and don't get too confused with there's another website that is uh, Feeding America. is about feeding uh, the hungry. Uh, it's a University of Michigan website called Feeding America. The Cornell uh, University has another uh, set of books online uh, um, dedicated to the history of, of um, uh, home economics, and that also has cookbooks in it. Um, oh my goodness! There's there's just so many. Library of Con- Congress, for example, um, has just digitized a whole lot of community cookbooks, and they're it's be- it's a beautiful site. You go there, you look at, you see the beautiful covers on all of these things. Um, they have some very early ones and and more recent ones. Um, that's a that's a good story. Actually, the Library of Congress has fabulous stuff online, and. The, there's a sec, there's a whole big section just called American Memory, and you could. W- w- earlier we were talking about addictions and getting ourselves lost and looking for information. Oh my word! <laughs> American Memory on in the Library of Congress is just a. It's just you could just wander in the in there for the next ten years, and never come up for air. It's fabulous, amazing stuff uh, available. Narratives, travel description, um, um, oral histories, uh, novels, um, you name it. It's just wonderful stuff. You'll you'll never live, I'll never live long enough to explore half of what I'm interested in that, that one website. Now there's also crowdsourcing for um, manuscript cookbooks. Uh, lots of you know, manuscript cookbooks are the ones where, where women wrote down their recipes, you know, in their own hand, sometimes in little notebooks. We more recently do it on cards, you know, but uh, in past times people had these little uh, hand-assembled hand blank paper books and they wrote recipes down in that. Um some of them are quite old, some of them are not so. Um, but a lot of those are being um, transcribed by people like you and me, Sarah, who just find this an interesting thing to do, and they're being uploaded to um, 
uh, various websites. There's um, there's one dedicated, for example, just to uh, remedies, um, and then there's there's ones that are you know, some of them are dedicated to a particular period of time. Some of them are um, regional, but they're they're all it's all just they're crowdsourced, which means that there's lots and lots of people out there working away at this kind of stuff. Really great thing, you know. Who needs? You don't have to have somebody um, standing on a scanner for hours and hours and hours scanning pages. People are transcribing. People, lots and lots and lots of people are transcribing and getting this stuff um, available for all of us to look at. Wonderful stuff. Uh, do you, all right. So, other than uh, just sort of open websites are out there. Are there any particular like titles of cookbooks that are your go-to? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love starting with um, Hannah Glass, uh, who, whose recipe, now she published her cookbook in England in 1747. And the reason I really find her so interesting is because there are a great many manuscript recipe books that have recipes copied wholly right out of her books. And those women wrote the recipes down, and then they came they came to this country and they settled here. Um, I'm not quite sure what their motivation was, but I kind of imagined that they saw themselves in a wilderness, and they just wanted to have some familiar recipes with them, um, just in case. Um, so I, I like using Hannah Glass. Hannah Glass uh, was revised uh, pretty periodically, uh, but finally in addition published in America in 1805, and it has a whole little insert of uh, what were termed American cook, which was termed American cookery. Um, let's see, I like that. I like um, E. Smith from the middle of the 1700s. That was another one brought to this country and printed uh, for people to use. We got the first American cookbook, Mia Simmons' uh, book, which was... Um, called American Cookery, published in 1796. Um, she's always on my list. Um, American Frugal Housewife by uh, Lydia Maria Child, 1833. Oh, um, Virginia Housewife, Mary Randolph, 1824. Um, it, the field gets a little crowded in the middle of the 1800s, but um, I like Miss Parloa, Mary Henderson, um, there's dinner yearbooks. Uh, oh, I'll think of her name in a minute. Can't think of the author's name right this minute. But um, then um, you know it depends, of course, on where in the country you live. If you if you live in the south, you're going to want to look at lettuce, lettuce Brian's work. You're going to want to look at um, uh, Mrs. Hale. Uh, Oh gosh, there's the Virginia Housekeeping, which came out in 1879, which is a community cookbook actually, um, but it's just chock full of all kinds of great stuff. Um, and the, you know, I, everywhere in the country. Oh, I know who I love is um, the author of Fifty Years in a in a Maryland Kitchen. Uh, her name escapes me right now, but she was such a. She seems so personable. Um, I really, I love that book. And Maryland is such an interesting location because it was 
sort of stuck between the north and the south, and so lots of times edges of places, you know, where whether it's one way of doing things on one line on one side and different way of doing things on another side, you get lots of mixing up, and you see how people cope with tension or trying to to uh, blend the two, um, uh, and that comes through clearly in. Um, in 50 years in American, in in a Maryland kitchen, um, I use uh, Fanny Farmer's original Boston Cool Cooking Cool um, Cookbook. I like the fir- I like looking at the earliest copies of um, uh, Irma Bauer's uh, Joy of Cooking. Those are really um, those are a lot of fun. Good to see she was a wonderful cook. Um, but she also uses tomato soup, you know, and canned soups. Lots of people did. It's fun to see how all that was played out um, in that era. Um, I, I usually give up right around the 1940s or so because there was just um, there were just so many cookbooks written that it just becomes kind of baffling and overwhelming. Um, that's when I'm more likely to try to drill down on um, more finite regional things. So that's where community cookbooks from any particular part of the country that I'm interested in, that's a good place to, um, those are good places to look to see what people were really likely to be doing. I think that community cookbooks, are just one step away from a manuscript cookbook. You know, if a woman has a manuscript cookbook, she's writing down the recipes that she likes to use. Um, Chances are it reflects what she's actually doing in her kitchen. She's writing these things down so she remembers how to make a particular thing. Um, A community cookbook, I think, very often reflected what a whole community had. I think sometimes the authors were invited to um, submit recipes because they were famous for them. And so the cookbook, I think, shows what people actually were doing, not just what they were thinking about doing, which is what your, which is what your drawer full of newspaper clippings shows. It doesn't show what you're actually doing. It shows what you think you might someday, maybe, if you ever open that drawer up again and dig around in there. Um, That's that's exactly right. There's um, no right there. The things you really do, then you have things you sure would like to do maybe someday. There's there's, um, one of the Laura cookbooks that came out. is uh, They call it the Laura Ingalls Wilder Country Cookbook. And I like it because it has just gorgeous pictures (laughs) of uh, Laura's actual, well, stuff from Laura's kitchen. But... from the pictures they show of where they're taking it from, it's like a scrapbook that is cut out recipes stuck into it. And, uh, I, I, you know, I just don't think there's any guarantee that she ever made a single one of those recipes. No, no. Yeah, that's a long shot. <laughs> of course, if you find so, one, it's all spattered up um because it's been kicking around the kitchen table while somebody's been trying to make something and that's a different ball game. Mm-hmm. Um uh, then you can be sure <coughs> was used. Yeah. Well maybe not always. Somebody once told me that um they had a 
a manuscript cookbook of their own that they had they were using in their kitchen one time and cat jumped on the table and knocked something over and splashed splashed something all over that particular page and so you'd get the you'd get the impression from looking at that cookbook that this page, wow this person really used this this recipe a lot and it was just the cat so <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while, those turn out to be good recipes, though. My uh, grandmother had one for what she called Lazy Daisy Cake, which was a WHO recipe card. And I I have the original WHO recipe card she got it off of. But, you know, we made that all the time, you know, all across the family. But I think a lot of those that you clip out is that's exactly it, the recipes that you'll want to try sometime. Yeah. Which is not now, which may never be. Yes, that's right. You know, I think um, I, I think we're all aware that the sense of smell is the is the, the one of the senses that triggers memory. Um, we if we smell something, we're very much more likely to remember something associated with that smell from a from another time in our lives. And of course, taste is a, is depends partly on the sense of smell as well. If you have no sense of smell, you don't taste things uh, as they are really. And so, when we're cooking something from our family. Um, when we smell it, when we taste it, we're very likely to have all kinds of memories triggered that brings us a little closer to a time that we experienced in our past. And um, I think that's very precious stuff. Yes. So we're quickly running out of time. Isn't it interesting? You know, people always say, what will we talk about for an hour? And yet it seems to always go. <laughs> uh, I, I never had a trouble running out of things to talk about about food history. I don't know. What about you? Uh, well, I can talk quite a while. As I always tell people when uh, I'm, that that's one of the ways that I end my programs when I'm talking about them and I ask if there's any questions. I tell them I can do short answers, I can do long answers, I can tap dance. <laughs> there you go. Yes, that's right. So uh, is there any other source or anything that you'd especially like to point out as uh, to sort of kick us off? Well, you know, I think, you know, if there's been some really wonderful work done in food history in the past oh, 10 to 15 years or so. And finally, America has its own uh, Oxford Companion to American Food and Drink, and it also has the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Food and Drink. And these are wonderful big sources uh, chock full of detail written by people from all across the country about their specialties. Um, so if you're if you're interested in looking up something about, say, Brunswick stew, um, you can find out quite a lot. Um, and these are wonderful books for people who are just sort of, you know, um, whether you're working in in food um, 
as a professional, as a food writer, or uh, as a as a professional cook, and you're just curious, or if you're just um, someone who's enthusiastic about food and food history, you could find all those. You'd find those books very, very valuable. Um, you can find them easily. Just just check out Oxford um, University Press America, um, and you'll you'll see them right there. Those are wonderful things. Um, good sources for for people who want to know more. Okay. Well, Sandy, thank you for coming on and talking about how you look for the genealogy of a recipe and uh, given us a lot of uh, good places to look. And I'm going to uh, come up with a list of some of those sources you shared and send them to you first, Sandy, to make sure I've got them right. Oh, sure. And then we'll uh, go ahead and get them posted Sometimes oh, that's great. Like like my like my drawer of, of recipe cutting. Sometimes <laughs> um, we all have and, one. Yes, uh, and um, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I'm always glad when we get a chance to talk food history, and I um, really appreciate you coming on. And I wondered, do you want to give your book titles one more time? Uh, but, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It was really fun to do this, and I'm, I'm terribly glad I had the chance. So, uh, And, of course, I wish you a good Thanksgiving as well. Um, let's see. Saltwater Foodways, New Englanders and their food at sea and ashore in the 19th century. Food in colonial and federal America. Giving thanks. Thanksgiving history from Pilgrims to Pumpkin Pie, um, Maine Home Cooking. Those are the those are the main ones right there. All right. Well, thank you again, and happy Thanksgiving to you too. Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. And for everybody else, thank you for having joined us for this episode of Trundle Bed Tales. And watch for upcoming episodes. And until we meet again, remember to brighten the corner where we are. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.